All right, last week we started our study, if you remember, about the present kingdom by looking at the person and work of Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And I just want to recap a couple of things from last week so that we'll all kind of be up to speed as as we move forward uh, this morning. We started by looking at the reality that, and this is on your notes there, Jesus is what the people of God were meant to be, faithful witnesses of his greatness and glory. Okay, faithful witnesses of his greatness and glory. We saw in scripture how Jesus is the true Adam. He's the true man and he's the true Israel. Where both Adam and Israel failed in their obedience to God, Jesus succeeded. That's right, that's not on your notes. I have another note sheet here um, that I'll have somebody pass out for me. Because Norm updated my notes and those weren't on there. So those are coming around. We can fill in the blanks as we, as we go along. <clears throat> but, but this aspect of, of uh, Jesus being the true Adam and the true Israel is really, really helpful as we look at the whole of, of Scripture. And uh, Richard Barcellus, in one of the uh, seminary classes that I took, it was actually the one on biblical theology, uh, he just had a great summation of looking at Jesus as the, the uh, first or the uh, greater last Adam and contrasting that with the, uh, with the first. So I just wanted to read a section from uh, the notes that he had given in that class because I thought they were, they were helpful to kind of sum up this topic of Jesus as the last Adam. He says this, Paul calls our Lord Jesus Christ the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. In Romans 5, 14, he says that Adam is a type of him, that is Christ, who was to come. So Adam is type, Christ is anti-type. But as with all biblical types, Christ as anti-type of Adam is both like Adam and greater than Adam. Just as Adam was a son of God, so Christ is the son of God. As Adam was an image bearer, so Christ is the image bearer. As Adam was placed on the earth as God's servant representative, so Christ is placed on the earth as God's servant representative. Adam was placed and tempted in a garden without sin and failed. After his baptism, Christ is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted but passed the test. Adam was the head of the old humanity and represented it in the garden. Christ is the head of a new humanity and represented it in life, death, and resurrection slash exaltation. Whereas Adam failed to multiply his seed across the globe as image bearers in communion with God, Christ succeeds. So I think that's a good summation of that aspect of Jesus as the last Adam or the second Adam, as Paul refers to him there in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So after we discussed that last week, we, we looked next at the reality that, that if you want to go to God, you don't go to a building or a structure like the tabernacle or the temple, as we saw in the Old Testament, but you go to a person, namely Jesus. And the reason for that is because, as we see in the New Testament, Jesus is the true tabernacle. As John 1.14 said, that 
he tabernacled amongst us. He's the true tabernacle, and he is the true temple. If you remember, Jesus made that astonishing statement, and he said, something greater than Solomon is here, As, and he is the true, the true temple. And there, where we left off last week was that Jesus is the ruler of God's kingdom, and he is so because he is God's king, and all who are found in him are blessed because he is the only one with whom the Father was well pleased. And that's an amazing statement. When you think about the Father's declaration about the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father doesn't say that about anybody else except Christ. And now we being in him have that testimony about us, that the Father is pleased with us because we are in his Son. And then we looked at finally all who are in Christ have that rest, which we have begun to experience now and we will fully experience in the consummation of his kingdom. And we were reminded that rest is the goal of creation. Now, one of the things that we discussed last week and where we're going to pick up this week was that from a human standpoint, the place where Jesus looked least like God's king was when he was on the cross. Okay, and on on your note sheet, this is different than the outline that Norm put together for us, on your note sheet there, what looked to be his greatest moment of weakness was actually his greatest moment of strength. And we see that sentiment shared by his first followers, which is really interesting. There's no hint of shame or embarrassment among them because their Lord had been killed as a common criminal by a degrading method of execution. Um, on your note sheet there, on the contrary, rather than his first followers being ashamed, it's actually the ground of their boasting. It's the ground of their boasting. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 18 through 25. This sums up well the view of the cross of Christ. Starting in verse 18, Paul was inspired to say this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is is stronger 
than men. So there's, there's the view of the cross of Christ. Here's how the unbeliever is going to look at it, right? A sign of weakness, of folly. If he really was who he said he was, then why didn't he overcome the cross? And the reason for that is because the cross is the instrument through which God chose to redeem his people. And so this aspect, again, was not one of shame or embarrassment for those first followers of Christ, but it was actually the ground of their boasting. And this is the way Paul says it in Galatians 6.14. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So, so Paul knows that the cross was not a tragic failure. Rather, it was a triumphant success. And God ordained that his kingdom would come in no other way. And that's because something had to be done about sin and God's anger against it, right? God, because of his character, he could not simply stop being angry. God's justice demands that he cannot turn a blind eye to evil. It, it must be punished. There on your note sheet, so how does God solve this apparent dilemma of being merciful to sinners while at the same time upholding his justice? The answer is the cross of Christ. Okay. That's a really important concept. This is a good, actually, by the way, if you ever have a dialogue with, with Muslims, this is a really good question to ask them because they would affirm that God is both merciful and just, but you got to press that and say, how is he both at the same time? Because if, if, he's just, if he's just sweeping sins under the rug and that's what you might call mercy, then he's not just anymore because he hasn't dealt with those sins, right? But how he answers that is the cross of Christ where both his mercy and his justice are displayed perfectly. Sin is dealt with, justice is satisfied, and mercy is extended because that justice did not fall on us, but fell on his beloved son. So the answer is, is the cross of Christ. And John Piper, a few years back, actually more than that, 2006, uh, I think just explained it really well. So if we're quiet, I think we can hear it. <laughs> And hopefully it, it will be beneficial for us. But I'll make a judgment call here a couple minutes in and see, see how it's going. But listen to how Piper explains the justice of God being upheld at the cross of Christ and therefore being merciful to sinners. We all stand before God in a courtroom and he either justifies us or condemns us. If he justifies us, it means he's found in our favor in this courtroom. He declares us to be just. That's what justify means. He declares us to be just. Now, what is the indictment that we brought into this courtroom? What's the indictment against us? The answer is, from Romans 3.10, none is righteous. None is just. Nobody in this room is righteous. No, not one. None does good. That's the indictment we bring into this courtroom 
and we are being assessed by an omniscient judge. Can't fool him. He knows absolutely everything about my sin. This omniscient judge considers all the factors that are relevant to my case. And he declares this sinner not guilty. Or to put it even more starkly, he declares this unrighteous man righteous. visiting tonight and you're not a Christian this is the center of Christianity listen please listen very carefully this is the center this is different from all Islam all Shintoism all Buddhism all Hinduism all secularism all animism nobody no religion has this a son of God and something called justification by faith alone. So here we are in this courtroom, guilty, sinners, all of us, and the judge renders the verdict righteous. Now how can that be? That's what Romans is about. How can that be? Let me put it in three steps. The, the ground underneath this outrageous verdict. Let me, put, let me put the ground in three steps. Step number one, we trust Jesus alone as the ground and the basis of our justification. Not anything we do, not anything we are, and not anything God helps us to do. We trust Jesus Christ alone as the ground and basis of that verdict. Second, that's number one. Second, this faith, as I look totally away from John Piper and all that he is by nature and all that he is by grace, I look totally away from John Piper to Jesus alone as my ground of justification and my basis of justification and in that faith, and through that faith, I am united to Christ. A union with Christ happens. The way to see this is to put Romans 5.1 beside Romans 8.1. Remember that. Put Romans 5.1 beside Romans 8.1. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation, the negative way of saying justification, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now, if you put those on top of each other, let the template fall, the in Christ Jesus corresponds to by faith. That's why I'm saying that when you trust him, in and through that a union is established so that you're now in him. You're in him. That's step two. Step three. In him, his righteousness, his obedience, or you could say God's righteousness in him. 
I won't be picky about how we say it. I think all these are right ways of saying it. In him, his righteousness is, the word that's used in the ESV is, counted as ours. The more historical word is imputed to us. Those are the three steps that provide the ground underneath this courtroom so that God's declaration of me as righteous finds some basis in reality. You know, it is one thing to be forgiven when you are unrighteous. It is a glorious thing. Let us never minimize the preciousness that God forgives sins because of the work of Christ on the cross. Forgiveness, too, would be an outrage were it not for the cross. But I cannot escape the exceeding wonder that not only does God look upon a guilty person in the courtroom and exercise clemency and forgive him and say, you're guilty, I forgive you, go and sin no more, but he also, beyond all imagination, looks upon this guilty sinner and does not just say, you're guilty, I forgive you. He says, you're not guilty. <gasps> I mean, forgiveness is understandable. Just a little bit understandable. We kind of have some way to get our hands around forgiveness. You let it go. You don't hold it against them. But this, look me right in the face, John Piper, right in the face, sinner though I am, and say, Righteous, not guilty as charged. And the charge was not righteous. You're not not righteous. You're righteous. That's inexplicable unless there's some basis under it. Amen. So hopefully that was helpful. I thought Piper did a really good job of just explaining again the connection there between the work of Christ, God's justice being satisfied, and the declaration of us being righteous, of God being merciful to us uh, in, in Christ. So as we kind of heard there in that, in that clip that God in his grace sent his own son to take that punishment in our place. And as we talked about last week, he died as a substitute facing God's anger against our sin. So he is the one to whom all the Passover lambs and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed. When you read back through the, the Old Testament, it's very bloody, isn't it? Right? Sacrifices are happening all over the place. Blood is being shed continually, and it's an indictment against our sin. But all of that blood shedding was pointing forward to this one blood that would be shed, the blood of Christ. And so as a result, God's righteous wrath is satisfied, or another way of saying that is propitiated. And if we trust in Christ, then truly... We can claim that promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ has been condemned in our place, right? So the justice of God is fully, fully satisfied. And listen, that's a message 
that we need to continuously hear. It's not just we hear it and we're, we're saved or justified in the sight of God. I need to hear that over and over and over again to be reminded of the work of Christ on my behalf because of the corrupting sin that still remains within me. And it casts me afresh upon the mercy of God. So as we transition here and we talk about the Gospels, I want to bring back in an Old Testament text that succinctly sums up the suffering of Christ on the cross, and that is um, Isaiah 53. So you can go ahead and turn there with me. Isaiah 53. And if I could have somebody, we will split this up into uh, four sections. If I can get four readers to help with this, who would take Isaiah 53, 1 to 3? Isaiah 53, 1 to 3. Alberto, thank you. And then how about 4 through 6? Okay, Jay, thanks. 7 through 9? Okay, Millie, thank you. And then 10 through 12. I'll take that. Anthony, thanks. <clears throat> All right. Let's go ahead and start. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Enter the Lord been 